Welcome everyone to episode 146 of the Reds Unrestricted Podcast. I'm your host David Comerford and I'm joined by Dan Club and Rahul Mohan Kumar as we discuss Liverpool's polling power. This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to bigheadsmedia.com for more great podcasts. So welcome to our first midweek uh, podcast of the new season. We're going to be doing these each week in addition to our match reaction episodes. Obviously, Liverpool facing Bournemouth this weekend. We'll touch on that at the end. But first, we want to go into the transfer window a bit, which is obviously still the focus for the first few weeks of the new campaign. And the place we're going to start today is by touching on Romeo Lavia, who is about to seal a move to Chelsea for about £58 million. I think it's £53 million guaranteed, £5 million in add-ons. Um, Dan, obviously we know Liverpool made three offers for this player. I think the last of which was worth about £46 million. Um, went for Caicedo, tried to come back for Lavia. Lavia decides, no, he's going to go to Chelsea instead. Do you understand the player's decision in light of how Liverpool conducted themselves or do you think that he might have made a mistake here? I think he might have made a mistake here if he's gone for purely footballing reasons because I see there was some sort of reports emanating sort of when it became apparent that he obviously was Chelsea-bound. There was reports coming out and somebody I've spoken to a lot, actually the Belgian journalist, Sasha Tavlieri, he's a good guy, really is a good guy. Um, but he came out and he was one of them to say there was some sort of bemusement, I think was the word, from Lavia's camp about Liverpool sort of ignoring Lavia for the last week or so and sort of concentrating fully on Caicedo. Now, in essence, I understand that and I can understand why that would annoy Romeo Lavia. That would annoy most football, that would annoy most people. If you were sort of, you know, flavour of the month for so long that all of a sudden somebody else comes along. It's like a girl, a different girl, and you stop texting the other one, isn't it? And you're suddenly all in for that one. It's very similar to that, so I get it. But it doesn't make any sense from Lavia's perspective because he's joining a club that have also just signed Moises Caicedo after Chelsea have courted him for even longer than us. So very odd in that sense. From a purely footballing perspective, I know you want to come into sort of the pulling power essence and the, and the, the, the grander thing in a moment, but from a football perspective, it makes no sense because we're crying out for a six. He'd have been first choice, maybe not sort of after September the 1st, but in the here and now he would have been first choice. I'm not entirely sure he's first choice, even without Moises Caicedo. I think Enzo Fernandez might be ahead of him in that particular back in order. I think he's a wonderful player. He's brilliant on Sunday. But he's immediately not first choice to Chelsea. The minute he arrives, the minute he signs, sealed and delivered, he's behind Moises Caicedo in the back in order. There's no European football to call upon. He's not going to get his games in the Europa League or, you know, minutes in the Champions League. That doesn't exist. So, I don't I don't buy into that, personally. I believe the main reason, and this is going to sound bitter, cynical, whatever, is the contract and, and the finances and offer. It's as simple as that. And it was the same with Moises Caicedo, unfortunately. I know he was a Chelsea fan um, and all that stuff, but it was very much agent-led. He was desperate to get into Chelsea because he knows the agent fee is astronomical at Chelsea as well. But that eight, nine-year contract, like that is something else. And as a player, that secures you forevermore. Like, why wouldn't you go for that? So, no, I don't buy the fact that it was football-related. I think he might have made a mistake, I think. I've seen a lot of people saying, like, oh, he'll be on loan at Strasbourg in two years' time. I don't quite buy into that notion. 
but I don't think he'll play the football that he probably deserves. Yeah, this is a bit of a complex one, I think, because Liverpool really, you know, I think one big thing with transfers is you've got to make players feel important, and that Liverpool obviously did the opposite. Um, not only by going for Caicedo, but the fact that you're making kind of a British record fee after sort of saying for weeks, you know, we don't think Lavi is this 50 million player. Um, and when you put that message out in the press, I think it kind of has the opposite effect to, to what you really need um, in the players' camp. So I, I do I do get it from that standpoint. But again, I just can't shake the sense, Rahul, that he's going to a team where Caicedo's in place, Fernandez is in place. I can't see Pochettino starting all three of those players in the same side. So, I mean, maybe there was an argument there for just kind of, those are very real, legitimate grievances that he's got, but maybe there was an argument for putting those aside and making what actually might have been a better decision for his career, really. I think it's funny. I saw some, I can't even say it was my thought, but I saw someone else say, you know, Lavio was annoyed with this because we showed that he wasn't first choice, only to go to Chelsea to face that same decision every week, which made me laugh a bit. Um, no, I, d- I don't think he, he will be there as first choice. I think they've signed Moises Casado as, you know, the out-and-out number one six where Lavia is playing. Um, you know, he's still very young, 19 years old. There's no reason he can't be moulded into an eight. Um, you know, it's easy to see in isolation. They don't have European football this season, but next year I'm sure they'll have some form, possibly. Um, but I think, again, he's just repeating what Dan said. You know, if someone offered you a nine-year contract... Worth, worth about £13 million. It's hard to... Do you know what I mean? And I think this was on top of the fact that I think we did mess him about a little bit. I think when we agreed that fee with Brighton for Caicedo, my, one of my first thoughts after being pretty excited was, uh, pff, I feel bad for Lavia here, you know. I think we've been going on for months and months up in our offer by a million pound a week. And then throw 111 here at Caicedo after, you know, months of this lad just waiting there. He'd been excluded by Southampton, hadn't been starting games. So I think that there is a human aspect to it. We always, I think we often forget that these, you know, players are still people. And um, you can imagine him, you know, being told by his agent or whoever the person might be being, no, they've still not made the £50 million offer, but, you know, they put in 111 here for 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 Caicedo, so I, I understand why he's made the choice. So I think we'll we'll see whether that's been the right choice for his career later on. But many players do it. Do you know what I mean? There are loads of players that sign for clubs like this where you don't see a direct route into the first team. You don't see a plan, um, and they still do it because I think at the end of the day, it is a job for a lot of players. And if someone's offering you 250,000 pound a week. It's a, it's, it's a pretty convincing offer. Yeah, and to be fair as well, you know, the length of contract, you know, how often do we see players, and I'm not suggesting Lavia would do this, but how often do we see a player sort of kind of sitting at a club when the club doesn't want them, but just kind of refusing to leave because they're, you know, they're happy with their situation, happy with where they're living, happy with the amount of money they're making, and then the club can't, you know, can't shift them off the contract. And, and that's probably the problem for Chelsea because, you know, it's an incentive to give the player that long a deal at the start, but that's, you know, there's no way all of these, the, the litany of deals they've handed out are going to become kind of 
there's no way that it's going to be entirely unproblematic, really. Was there something you wanted to add on that? Uh, yeah, I feel down. has got something to say in here. It's, it's not to add. It's completely off topic entirely. Um, there's a there's a new story coming out of Holland, a, a, a Dutch outlet basically, and it's saying Liverpool are on the verge of signing Sofian Amrabat. And which and which Dutch outlet is this that, that said it's it? AD Sport, um, not one I'm familiar with. Rotterdam based, and he was former final player. So, oh yeah. Uh, I, I'm. I just come out of the blue, come out of absolutely nowhere. Amrabat. Interesting. Um, Interesting, yeah. A lot more to sort of discuss. Until he's in United looking for a house. Well. Until he's in Manchester looking for a same, house. And then we were linked again. in January. But yeah, anyway, yeah, that's completely so, out of Yeah, they're here first. Chelsea FC sign Sofian Amrabat. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Nine years old. Um, so let's let's get into well, obviously we'll keep an eye on that and see what happens um on the on the Amrabat front, but let's get into kind of the uh, discussion about pulling power because you know we talked about Lavia. Um so in addition to him, we've seen Mount, we've seen Caicedo. Two players Liverpool were probably regarding as top targets have said no uh, and joined Premier League rivals instead. Now, players have, have said no before to Liverpool during Klopp's tenure, during you know, the heights of Jürgen Klopp. I think Timo Werner is probably an example of that. Um, he sort of, I remember he did an interview, said, um, you know, Liverpool made an offer, but I chose Chelsea kind of thing. But it's rare that we've seen multiple players reject the Reds in the same window. And to be honest, the, the embarrassment of this week with how the Lavia and Caicedo sagas have played out feels quite new as well. So, Dan, would you say that this is uncharted territory? Would that be fair? Yeah, I think it would be fair. Um, because like you say, it's not something we've become used to. Um, but even sort of in the days whereby we weren't challenging for Premier League titles like we have been recently, and even before that, like we, we still attract the best players like we have Fernando Torres for instance the World Cup winner and Luis Suarez you know we had Philip Coutinho I know he was pretty unknown when we signed him we unearthed him really but we were still able to attract some of the best players across the continent so this is relative and it's more it's more over a thing and sort of a talking point because in recent years in the Klopp era you mentioned Timo Werner there but generally speaking our transfer business has been relatively cut and dry especially when we like Michael Edwards and Julian Ward. We go for a player. Liverpool go for a player. Within 48 hours, Liverpool have agreed. We've got the famous Paul Joy suite, and away we go. We all move on with our lives. So to see a saga play out in the way it has done, I think is amplified by the fact that we had such a poor season last year, obviously. There's a, little, well, there's a lot of unrest behind the scenes in terms of the restructuring and people leaving and sort of key cogs in the machine not being there anymore, Michael Edwards being there primary example of that so it is relatively chastening and obviously you can point towards many factors and, and, and the personnel sort of making the deals happen the old Schmadka in this case is obviously a factor in this and people are sort of already questioning him and how suitable he is for the role as well but I think obviously missing out on the Champions League doesn't help your pulling power but I don't think that's a factor in these deals because obviously Chelsea um, if you look at the cases in an individual basis, like the Chelsea one, they're an absolute enigma when it comes to this now because they're offering wages, they're offering agent fees, like I mentioned before, and they're offering contract lengths like we've just never seen before. Todd Bowley is, quite frankly, a lunatic. So going up against them for footballers is essentially nigh on impossible. 
you are asking a footballer and his representatives probably more importantly to make a decision solely based on footballing aspects and I would have an argument with anyone that Caicedo and Lavia had it solely been down to footballing aspects would have joined Liverpool I maintain that despite us having a bad year look at what the year Chelsea had and you can't tell me that we're further away from a trophy or a title challenge than Chelsea are just not willing to have that conversation so I think those two it's just madness from Chelsea what they're doing quite frankly the money they're willing to spend and I think the Enzo Fernandez deal that they got over the line in January I, I think I'm right in saying the agent got something like 11 million for that that deal alone if you're an agent of Caicedo or Lavia you're pushing your man towards Chelsea mm-hmm. and Manchester United with Mount that one uh, that, that one stung a little bit more I'd probably say because Manchester United for one but they are also, as much as we sort of hate to admit it, they're also a superpower when it comes to football. Historically, you know, they're as big as us. Some might argue bigger. Um, so I'm not that affected by that. And the one thing they had in their favour, they pay a lot more than we do in wages, by the way. So money, unfortunately, is a factor. They did get Champions League football. So there is a conversation around pulling power, but I must admit, I can sort of break it down like I've just done there and kind of be at peace with it, if that's okay. I think, sorry, Dan, I agree completely with everything you said there. You know, I think if you want to look at pulling power, you can look at it in two ways, right? As you said there, footballing-wise, I don't think that's an issue. Um, I think it's finances where maybe we don't have the same sort of pool. And Caicedo Lavia are two recent examples. But even on the Bellingham deal, you know, it's come out that he didn't make the decision when we had pulled out. You know, it wasn't, uh, you know, he, he hadn't chosen Madrid at that point, but it was more the stumbling block of the 400k a week wages, which is, you know, completely understandable. I, I stand by the club's decision. You know, I think that the owners have made a big um, gamble on FFP being maybe a bit more than what it is in its current form. And we are choosing to operate that way. Fine. I think that's a, a decision which you can stand behind. What is more worrying and where I think the pulling power is, is not there is the way, again, Daniel alluded to that, is what's happening behind the scenes. Um, not only in the way we are sort of going for targets, but in the manner we're doing it, I think it's a lot more public in the sense that when have we ever heard in the past five years of us having bids rejected, having another bid put in, having that rejected, having a bid accepted, agreed with the club, but not with the player, that's what is more worrying and and I feel we don't see that part as fans as much but I think for agents and players you see a, a, a team that handles themselves well you want you want to work with them and that's where I feel and I'm worried we're slightly losing our pulling power in that sense I think that that's a fair point I mean just to bring it back to what Dan said slightly I mean first of all on York Schmacker um we don't know from the outside like who's pulling the strings and to what extent the mess that we've seen this summer is his fault. But it does feel like with him being on a six-month contract, regardless of whether it's his fault or not, he's set up to be the fall guy already. Um, and to be honest, I think we'd all be pretty stunned based on how this window has gone um, if Schmacker was still the sporting director come you know, 2024. Um, first of all. Second of all, I think you make a really important point, Dan, about Chelsea's spending and how 
Liverpool are still kind of as close, if not closer, to challenge over the top honours. And, and that, for me, is the maddest thing, because this prospective deal for Michael Elise, which is about £35 million, I think takes their spend over the last 12 months to, to £900 million, uh, or beyond that mark, which... I mean, even in the current football landscape, which is obviously you know completely unhinged. I mean that that's that is totally unprecedented. And the maddest part about that for me is that Chelsea are still a top four team at best, and and that's just remarkable that you can spend that amount of money and not be in title contention. Um, so I think Liverpool literally, you know, if Liverpool can and get one or two more deals done in the areas that need it. I'm still backing them 10 times out of 10 to finish above Chelsea this year. And that's kind of quite a staggering reality when you consider the, the difference in spending. Um, but like, let's talk a bit more about the kind of the factors that are at play when it comes to pulling power. Um, we've spoke about the lack of Champions League football and how that's not really relevant. We thought it, it might be before the summer that Klopp was getting asked about it in press conferences. But like we say, Chelsea aren't in the Champions League at all. So you can't talk about that. Um, money could be a factor. I mean, there was a report from the Athletic that Liverpool were willing to get in the same ballpark as, as uh, Man United for Mason Mount. Um, obviously, you know, reports are going to vary on that. But the thing I think with that, and I'll come to you on this, Rahul, is, you know, Liverpool have never really offered players top wages straight out, straight out the blocks. You know, even I think when Nunez arrived last summer, he was coming in at 140k a week or something like that. And, you know, that's a club record signing. And I think that is kind of emblematic of how Liverpool basically put a player on like a mid-tier contract originally. And then they had the opportunity to get, you know, those top top wages if they, you know, justify it on the pitch. So my concern with the whole wage argument, because it is quite an easy one to make, is that I think Liverpool have always, you know, clubs have always been ready to outcompete Liverpool on wages. But the Liverpool project has been appealing enough that players will kind of forgo more money. I mean, what would you say to that? Um, I think that that remains to be the case. Um, I mean, just a bit, of, a bit of context on it. If we had paid the 50 million two weeks ago for Romeo Lavier, he'd be a Liverpool player probably on about 60, 60 grand, something like that. Do you know what I mean? Chelsea wouldn't have been, I, I think, it's, again, it's hard to say in hindsight, isn't it? But I don't think Chelsea would have been an option at that point. So again, it's whether we we have mishandled that that position. I don't think we need to, and we, you know, from history, we haven't get in a in a fight with the Chelsea's, the United's, the Cities. We've never done it, and we we don't have to do it. We just need to stick to what we've been good at doing, and that's identifying talent um, and going for talent, convincing them of the project, and tying these deals up without getting in a in a you know in a gunfight with with other teams where we are coming in with a knife. Do you know what I mean? We've done this successfully for the past five years, and I think there's no reason, you know, this isn't a possibility. Liverpool haven't been shy about paying big fees when they think it's valid. And this is often for players that, you know, like you said, Nunes is on a not particularly high wage. Gakpo's come in on a small, way, a small transfer fee and a small wage as well. So I think... You know, we, we don't have to go down that route. And I think if we did go down that route, we would be fighting a losing battle anyways. Um, as you said, Todd Bowley is a, is a madman, you know, offering out nine-year contracts. I wouldn't be surprised if he's offering out, you know, a million pound a week at some point to some player that he wants. United have always been big spenders um, and City are never shy about their wages either. I think what we need to do is get back to what we're good at, which is identifying top talent, convincing them of the project 
and doing this all out of the public eye. You know, that Fabinho deal after the Champions League is what we need to do and what we're good at. So we need to get back to doing things like that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that, to be honest. And obviously part of that is getting those cast iron assurances on the player side before you actually, you know, make those offers in the first place because that's not going to suit yeah. the club whatsoever, <laughs> really. Um, Dan, like, the biggest asset that Liverpool have had, obviously, you know, you, you can disagree with this, but for me, the, the number one asset with recruitments has been Jurgen Klopp, you know, the past however many years. You, you can make a list of pretty much every single major sign in Liverpool have made, and each of them in interviews have said Klopp was the biggest reason that, that I made this move. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I think Klopp's demeanour has probably changed over the last year as kind of Liverpool's results have, have tailed off a little bit. He's maybe a little bit more frustrated. He's a little bit less, um, a little bit less energetic, perhaps. Um, do you think that Klopp might have lost some of that kind of vitality, some of that aura that that made him such a, an engaging and kind of disengaging presence? That basically it was just one conversation with a player, and then they were ready to join. Because again, I am just playing devil's advocate on this, but he is kind of the the one constant across you know Liverpool's pollen power over the past few years. Yeah, I think it'd be foolish to say. Not even so much in terms of that sort of that vigour and that exuberance and that sort of... A lot of people like him, as put it that way. He's a very likeable character, isn't he? Even out of football, he's funny, he's very personal. And you can imagine sort of, you know, the players that have met him in years gone by, it must be hard to say no to him at the end of that conversation, essentially. You know what I mean? You can, be, you can imagine yourself being convinced by Jürgen Klopp, the way he speaks with passion, he speaks very well on a whole range of subjects as well, not just football, by the way, he speaks brilliantly all the time. That's why I always think the journalists, when there's like a world matter going on, they tend to ask Jürgen Klopp about it, they don't ask a lot of the other managers about it, but they know they'll get a good answer and they know they'll get something out of him. So, I um, I can understand why people might think, not so much, like I say, not so much when you're having that one-to-one conversation, because I imagine sort of isolated incidents, he can be all the things I've just described him. I'd be that happy, jovial guy that can convince anyone of anything. But people have probably seen sort of the cracks start to appear in some of his post-match stuff. Um, there was a time whereby he admitted defeat on the title, wasn't it? And he was very down then. There was a lot of stuff going on in his personal life at the time as well, of course. But it's it sort of the overall makeup of the man we believe him to be sort of bulletproof and untouchable people have probably seen cracks amongst that and he might not think that he is the man that they once thought he was so i can understand why some footballers might have seen that and gone do you know what i'm not as convinced as i once was by playing for Jurgen Klopp." so and also we've seen him lose his temper and stuff not necessarily with players but there were reports sort of when he left Dortmund that that wasn't particularly amicable towards the back end of it so Maybe there have been some chinks in the armour, like you say, and some footballers who once just had to look at look him in the eyes and you were suddenly smitten by the fact that you want to play for Liverpool. Maybe that has been broken down a little bit over time. And sort of the more he's been in England, the more he's been in the Premier League, we have seen more and more of the bad stuff of Jurgen Klopp because it does exist. Of course it does. So, yeah, you might be right. Um, but like I say, I still think you don't often hear of managers being the ones to sort of do the convincing but I think it's actually come from Jurgen Klopp's side hasn't it he was always the one who would say I want to meet the player and I think you brought up Timo Werner before that was obviously heavy Covid times wasn't it I'm sure he did it over Zoom 
um, that conversation because he always wants to have that conversation. He wants to put the player in the white of the eyes as much as it's vice versa. So I personally, I don't think it's a negative and I don't think Jurgen Klopp meeting, he probably didn't have time to meet Kai Say who was shut down so quickly. He wouldn't have got to London and back in time. But like Lavia, for example, I don't think he's necessarily proven to be a, a net negative on these deals anymore. I don't think that's the case. I'd still like us to proceed and him to proceed in that sense. Because, like I say, I, I always reference it and I, I use it now. When we signed Cody Gakpo, in like two weeks later, or possibly even less than that, he was asked sort of why. And he said he wants players who are going to help push the train and not just jump on and sort of come along for the ride. And I think so much of that stems from these meetings that we're talking about. And Jurgen Klopp getting to meet the players and really sort of get a grasp of what they're like. So, to sort of sum up, I think he should remain, carry on being that guy and carry on doing that. He shouldn't just be sort of, because you see some managers are more like a coach, aren't they? And they just set aside. He is a hands-on manager. And I think he probably won us more players than he's ever lost us by doing it, I would imagine. So, I take the point. And I think, like I say, I think some players might have seen certain little negatives and they don't quite buy into his philosophy as much as they once did but I, I do think as well I think in spite of what was a horrendous season last year and in spite of the transfer business not being perfect as yet I think we've actually seen quite a reinvigorated Jurgen Klopp so far this season um, and hopefully that'll only get better with the weeks to come The, the one that I always think back to um, with with this is I think there was a, a players um players tribune uh, article that um Fabinho wrote and he said um I didn't even understand what Klopp was saying but just looking at him and seeing his demeanor and stuff like that w- was enough because obviously at the time he didn't speak English but again it was literally just that charisma that he could sense already um so again you know any sort of change in Klopp's attitude maybe would be quite impactful in that sense um Rahul, another element to this, and we're going to come on to, to Bournemouth in a second, so we'll, we'll kind of wrap this discussion up, but I, I think someone mentioned it earlier. If we take our Liverpool goggles off for a second, you know, Liverpool had their poorest full season under Jürgen Klopp last year. You know, there's so much upheaval behind the scenes at the moment. It kind of feels like, obviously, we're still all optimistic about the future, but it kind of feels like from the outside, Liverpool might be kind of seen as a bit of a sinking ship at the moment. Would that, would that be fair? Um... I think it, yeah, like you said, taking off your Liverpool goggles is one thing, but again, how do you are you are you half glass full or half glass empty, right? I think a very negative way to look at it. And to be fair, I'm quite pessimistic at times. Is to say, you know, oh, it's not just this summer. It's been the last eighteen months. Uh, you know, recruitment maybe hasn't been as good as it has been. Um, the coaching side, you know, we've been trying new things tactically. They've not come to fruition, uh, and I think that would be a negative way to look at it. And I think. You know, it's the, it's the new season. The positives are, are, are there. You know, we've convinced McAllister, Sobozlai to join us. We're going to go on to Bournemouth. I thought both of them were fantastic against against Chelsea. You, you know, two players that by no means were, were sitting there with no one interested in them. McAllister, especially World Cup winner. We know for a fact loads of clubs are queuing up. We've convinced him to come play for us. Um, Sobozlai, same thing. One of the best... Um, young midfielders in Germany, you know, normally Munich mops all of them up, and we've managed to, to do that as well. So we have to take the positives where they are. 
One way I would look at it is we are in transition and oftentimes it's hard to to look at the big picture when you're in it. Um, transition takes a while, you know, it could be 12, it could be 24 months, but it's a very distinct possibility at the end of the season. We look back at it and say, a rough seas then, but we've got a number six in, we possibly sign another midfielder, we get a new left-sided centre-back, we're in the Champions League spots, who knows, we might even be challenging, and we look at this period as a rough patch that was necessary. I think players and and agents and, and people within football aren't so quick to turn the opinions of them. Jurgen Klopp is still one of the best managers in the world, Liverpool Football Club is still one of the biggest clubs in the world. Um, I don't think we are viewed as a sinking ship by no means. You know, the, the fact that players are still willing to come to us, top, top, top players are willing to come to us. Um, the fact that we have Jurgen Klopp, like you said, one of our biggest assets, I think is all testament to that. What we need to do now is make sure that this is a rough patch rather than an extended uh, period of form, an extended period of uncertainty. I think that has to start at the top. I think we have to make a decision on the sporting director thing. Um, you know, that I think is a bigger uh, deciding factor for players rather than where we are in the you know in the league table in any given season. The fact that players you know were coming in so smoothly, we never heard of any of these issues until uh, under Edwards, is because we had certainty, we had a structure that was there for an extended period of time. So that's the first thing I'd like us to to do. And then secondly is to to get a settled squad. I don't think we've had a settled squad for about 18 months now. We've lost Mane, we've lost Firmino, we've lost about five midfielders. Um, let's get in the new boys. Let's see where we are in the next six months. And I think with a bit of luck, things could be very positive. Yeah, and you know, you, you're quite right to mention McAllister and, and Sabosla. I think there would have been interest there, especially with release clauses. I think obviously the, the the difference this summer in terms of previous summers is that um, you know more players have said no than usual. But you know there are still two weeks of the window left. There are still going to be targets that are pursued, and then hopefully those players are still you know um, very keen to join. But let's um, let's move it on to Bournemouth then. Obviously, uh, three o'clock kick off on Saturday, I believe. Um, Dan, you know I think we'll all be going into this one reasonably confident. Um, do you think there's a bit of pressure on the team to not only win but produce a big performance here? And um, what what are the main things you you want to see from them after that draw against Chelsea last week? Yeah, um, I think there is confidence amongst the fan base. It's been quite it's quite a dangerous proposition actually because I've seen like everyone, including myself, sort of looking at these first group of fixtures and obviously sort of tying in the defensive midfielder conversation in the same way and saying. Well, Chelsea's going to be tough, but they're sort of in transition in a similar way, so who knows? We'll beat Bournemouth, regardless of who's playing at six. So like, I could play at six and we'll beat Bournemouth. And then Newcastle and Villa would be hard. That Bournemouth game, now it's here, it's like, ooh, should we really have been saying that? Really? Um, but I also maintain that view. I think we'll beat Bournemouth. Um, we should beat Bournemouth, to be honest, regardless of who is there. I know Thiago is back in training today, so could well be him. Um yeah, of course it remains uh, remains a banana skin. I think their style of football might actually suit us. I actually went to Bournemouth um, when they beat us 1-0 at their place last year and they just bullied us, really. And that was something we were kind of susceptible to all last season, wasn't it? Like, we were getting bullied 
quite regularly, to be fair. So I actually think their new manager, because them sacking Gary O'Neill was bizarre to me. I don't know if anyone watched Wolves, Man United. Gary O'Neill's done a wonderful job at Wolves in the space of like 48 hours. Um, they were brilliant. So he seems like a really good manager. So I'm not quite sure why Bournemouth got rid. And their new manager, I know, likes to sort of play very progressive football, likes to get them get the ball down and be very positive and he wants Bournemouth to be so. That's it's so difficult to do um, with all due respect to the club and a, and a squad like Bournemouth. But yeah, I expect I expect us to get the job done, to be honest with you, of course we do. Um, and in terms of sort of what it what it means, it's a difficult one because we beat Bournemouth 9-0 last year, didn't we? And, and that proved to be somewhat of a false dawn, I think it's fair to say. So I'm not going to sort of hang my hat too much on whatever the result may be but it is absolutely pivotal that we get away with three points performance wise I'm not actually that fussed to be fair because I don't think this represents where we need to be obviously you need to beat these teams of course you do because if you don't you know it comes back to bite you but I think the Newcastle and the Villa games are going to show us a lot more about what we're up against because they were two sides that Sort of Newcastle looked quite literally finished ahead of us, of course. But Villa, in terms of form, the back end of our season were miles better than we were. So they're going to be two tougher tests, and they're going to be more sort of proof of where we're at. And hopefully by then we've got a genuine number six in place. Like I said, I joked about it earlier, but you probably could tinker with your defensive midfielder against Bournemouth. Like I'm not a huge fan of Trent playing that role. I don't like it. But you could go Trent and then put Joe Gomez at right back for this game. You know what I mean? Whereas I don't think you could do that against Newcastle and Villa. So I don't think the performance necessarily is going to matter too much. I'd have where I would say it'll matter, and what I would sort of finish on is I've had one eye on the defensive issues and Andy Robertson in his new role. I've had one eye on that for a while. After watching us on Sunday that suddenly changed like one and a half eyes because that was worryingly like and I, I can't make my mind up and feel free to sort of elaborate on this if somebody wants to I can't make my mind up as whether because Andy Robertson's now no longer a normal left back and his role's changed am I watching him too much and sort of waiting for him to fail or is he really struggling like, he doesn't suit the role. He never has suited the role, of course. Not. He's not a centre-back. He's not six foot one for a start. But I can't make my mind up as to whether he is genuinely really struggling or whether I'm just watching it and sort of picking it apart too much. But yeah, like I say, to round off my point, we should beat Bournemouth regardless of who's in the six. Not that bothered about the performance or what it looks like. I mean, I'm with Robertson, I think, you know, in his defence, fellow just last week, not talking about the position broadly, I think well, probably wasn't given enough support from Gakpo. Again, I'm not necessarily criticising Gakpo there. It's just, you know, he's he's a forward. <laughs> you know, he's not necessarily used to, you know, supporting his left back in those defensive situations. But there were a lot of sort of 2v1s. I think this is an interesting game for him in the sense that, you know, if he is playing that role all the time, these the games are like, you know what, no, you can have a bit more licence here. We can be a bit bolder. We can let you join the attack. Then the games against Chelsea, you're like, hang on, no, you know, stay stay in that back three, you know, be a bit more positionally disciplined. So we'll see how we kind of approach it this week. Um, we'll come on to sort of uh, whether we tinker with the team a little bit in a second. But Rahul, would you agree with what Dan said there in terms of 
this game, current situation, doesn't really matter if Liverpool play all that well. Just the only thing that matters from this game, the only thing that will matter when we reflect on it will be that they got the three points. Yeah, just give me the three points now. Anyway, it happens. Do you know what I mean? No, but I, I mean, Dan's absolutely right. I think performance is, is maybe not the most important thing. What I would ex- extend that point further would be to say, let's start playing the way we want to play the rest of the season. Um, before Chelsea club says, you know, we need to find a solution for that game. Uh, McAllister plays in the six, Gakpo plays in midfield. I don't think that's going to be how, how we, we, we intend to play the rest of the season. I think if the manager was was listening to me now, he'd probably say, well, we don't really have any midfielders, mate, so I had to do that, which is fine, which is a valid point. But I think we're doing two two things, and I think we need to settle one of them. So we're integrating McAllister, integrating Sabozlai, and then we're playing them at position that, you know, they're not going to be playing long-term anyway. So that's the first thing I'd want to see for the Bournemouth game. Um, exactly as, as Dan was saying there, I think Bournemouth won't be an easy... Uh, a prospect. I think the new manager has got them playing quite aggressively. Um, looking back at his time in Spain, um, you know, he, he I think he did quite well against better teams. I think he enjoys that that sort of that sort of matchup, and uh, I, I'm sure he's trying to set that Bournemouth team up similar. They've made really good signings: Milos Kerkes, young left back, uh, Sandram Alkmaar, uh, Dom Sol- Solanke. You know, someone we're familiar with has been looking very decent. So I think it will be a tough prospect, but in a similar vein, I think it's definitely a game where we could see ourselves 3-0 up with sort of 35 minutes to go. Um, I think, again, recency bias with the Chelsea game, we look at it maybe with a sense of disappointment, but you look back at the highlights, first 20 minutes, we could be 3-0 up. Um, you know, I think it's Gakpo who doesn't take the shot on squares it the Mo. That could be another goal, more marginal offside. So I think... We just need to back ourselves. Hopefully the crowd's going well and uh, we need to bring back those three points. I think you make a re- really important point there about how good um, the, the manager's record was when he was at um, Valladolid in Spain. I was just Googling it there because I remember listening to, hearing something like this on a podcast the other day. They beat uh, Barcelona 3-1. Obviously Barcelona, who won La Liga last season, and managed to beat them at home in May. So that's... Um, you know, encouraging if you're a Bournemouth fan coming into this, I suppose. Um, 100%. Let's talk about team news then. Uh, we saw Klopp obviously, you know, have to go with one or two makeshift solutions against um, Chelsea last week. Dan, what what changes would you make to the lineup for this one? So I would go. Oh yeah. I would if Thiago can start the game. Thiago starts the game in the sixth. I agree with Val's point there a second ago. You do want to see the players playing their rightful positions, and that is McAllister playing as an eight, and it's Cody Gakpo playing as a nine. They're sort of the two simple fundamentals of that, really. Um, and and Trent playing at right back as well, just to add. Um, and I don't think I don't love Thiago as a six, but this is the type of game that Thiago should be able to do the six quite comfortably. I think we're going to have to use him as and when at times this season, sort of very sparingly for, for, for certain, and in, like I say, in particular types of football matches. And like I say, this should be one of them. So Thiago is a six, and Gakpo moving more into the nine. I'd like to see McAllister and Subozlai in times gone by sort of further on later in the season you might have rested one of them and sort of gone with a Jones or an Elliot 
who, by the way, Harvey Elliott was outstanding against Chelsea. So I had nothing against him starting. And I think he had a really good end to pre-season as well. But I'd like to go McAllister and Zabozai, just to get some more of understanding, get them on the same wavelength to move forward with the season. And uh, before what happened at the weekend, I just said Diogo Jota, my favourite front three for Liverpool, my sort of Champions League final front three, or Europa League final front three, as it is this season, would be um, Jota, Salah, Gakpo normally. But I'd go with Diaz over Jota. I think Jota struggled, to be honest. I was impressed with Louis Diaz and the way he operated. So, yeah, normal expected back five. No, I'm looking mad there. Um, yeah, midfield three of Thiago, McAllister and Sabozlai. Some techers in there, by the way. Um, and Salah, Gakpo and Diaz. To be fair, I think I'd be very, very similar to that. Um, Gakpo, I don't think should be starting midfield. Maybe in this game it's better. I think it was all right in preseason, all right last season. Didn't like it last week just because of the defensive side of things. But again, I'd be more inclined to put him centre forward. I agree with you that Jota didn't have a very impactful game at all against Chelsea. So I'd be sort of thinking Gakpo, Diaz, and Salah as my front line. I think whether Thiago is fit or not, I don't know. Um, it's difficult to gauge this because. You know, at any time in the season, you say if someone has a full week of training, they should be fit to start a game. But because he's missed the entirety of pre-season, does that mean, you know, he's just not in kind of the physical condition? I guess we'll find out when Klopp does his press conference on on Friday, I imagine. Um, If Thiago isn't ready, I'd stick with McAllister, probably, because we've seen it by Curtis, won't be either. I'd stick with McAllister in that role and then put Curtis Jones in the sort of left side of the advanced state. Um, obviously, Salbersly on the right, and then yeah, same same back five um, for me as we saw against Chelsea. Rahul, what would you do for it? Um, I think fitness permitting, I'd agree with Thiago in the six, only because I think home game, I'd love us to just get on the ball, control it, see what Salbersly and McAllister can do further up front. Um, but I think he probably wouldn't be in good enough nick to start on Saturday. Um, and I don't see anything wrong with Curtis Jones starting there. He played two or three games pre-season there, was really good. Um, he's fit. He, you know, he can pass the ball really well. We are expecting to hopefully have the majority of possession. So, you know, I, I've got no worries with him playing there. Like I said, this is just working back from getting McAllister and Zabozla in the right positions. And leading on to that fact, I agree actually that the. The dream front three for me would be Gakpo, Jota. And again, coming back to the point where players in the right positions, I'd love Jota to be on the left instead of the middle. I think he's always had his better games, you know, coming in when the ball's been held up further back. So I would do that, um, which might be a tough conversation with Diaz coming off, you know, a pretty good performance and a nice goal. Um, but yeah, so I would do Curtis in the six, so Bosley McAllister in the eights. Um, I'll start Jota again because... You know, uh, yeah, it's it's I don't know why. Like even when he's not in a bit of form, it's just someone I'm like he'll get us a goal. You know, he just pops up with them, and it's it's a goal we could do with. Do you know what I mean? Um, Gakpo in the nine, and then Salah on the right, and hopefully he hasn't fallen out with Klopp. But yeah, obviously the um, with the frustration with with coming off last week, and yeah, I think you know it's probably you can't really judge necessarily a player sort of too harshly on how they perform away to Chelsea. It will be one of the hardest away games all season, so. There's probably a decent chance Klopp goes unchanged, not only with the um, the front line, but maybe with the team generally. But yeah, we, we will see what happens. So yeah, we'll leave it there for this episode. Um, 
if you've enjoyed this podcast please do give us a five star rating on spotify or a five star review on apple podcasts and we'd really appreciate it and remember you can also follow the podcast and put notifications on as well so you get a message um, every time we put up a new episode we'll be back after the bournemouth game on saturday for our match reaction episode and yeah we'll see you then